You may be seated. Our sermon today is taken from 1 Kings chapter 2. I'm going to actually be reading uh, verses 1 through 11. Here, of course, we see, uh, before we saw how there was an attempted coup to uh, remove or make sure that uh, Solomon never came to the throne by his older brother Adonijah, uh, the oldest of the surviving sons of Solomon. But David, uh, sorry, the surviving sons of David. David had not promised that Adonijah would sit on the throne. He had promised that Solomon would sit on the throne in keeping with God's desire. And we're going to see how it would be that Solomon raises up the temple, the temple that David desired to build, but it was not uh, his uh, to do so. Before we turn to the word of the Lord, though, let's go to the Lord of the word and let's, let's ask him to help us. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would give us insight and understanding as we look to your word. Help us to divide it aright. Help me, O oh Lord, to explain it to your people. As Ezra, the priest, read the word of God, the Levites explained the meaning of that word to the people that they might have greater understanding. Let me be like that, Lord. Let me also speak prophetically in this time and this place. O oh Lord, may I declare the truth. May I open up the way of salvation to those who are in need of it. And may those, oh Lord, who are stubborn and resistant have their will broken. Lord, may it be that the ice is melted, Lord, even if the clay must be hardened. We pray, Lord, that, that hearts would be changed this day. Help us who know you to look with new wonder at what you do, the way that you order things, and be truly grateful for it. And also help us to be sober. This passage causes us to reflect upon our end. The day will come when we will be like David. And help us, O oh Lord, to have words to speak that are as wise as those he spoke to his son. Help us to be setting things in order now so that when the day comes for us to depart, we will be ready. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their hearts and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, and he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. 
Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Israel and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, obviously, as we begin this uh, section of scripture, we start off with David doing what we all must do one day, and that is, of course, to die. David here is dying. Now, I must tell you, as a pastor, uh, for the past 20 years, I have, uh, it's been my calling to see many people die. Some I have seen die well in the Lord, and others I have unfortunately seen die poorly. One of the things that I see again and again amongst those who are dying poorly, who are not ready to die, uh, is a desire to avoid the very fact that they are dying. It is almost as if they, uh, if they delude themselves enough, if they push it away, if everybody around them denies that it's going on, that suddenly that delusion will come true. I remember once visiting a man who was dying without Christ, and you could tell that he was, uh, he was um, only a few hours from death at the very most. He was gasping. His body was, was spent. Uh, his lungs were not going to sustain his body very much any longer. And I wanted desperately, I was invited by a relative to go and see him, uh, but I wanted desperately to be able to, to share the gospel with him. But the first thing that I had to, to tell him was that he, he was dying. As soon as I mentioned the fact, though, that he must soon die, his relatives became visibly angry. One of them said, oh, no. And they, they shooed me out of the room. Thank you for coming. Don't come back, in essence. Two hours later, that man died, surrounded by relatives who were determined not to let him know that he was dying and doing him no good whatsoever. Apparently, all they wanted was a superstitious talisman to stand by, like the, uh, you know, I've heard many of the airborne guys used to want to sit closest to the chaplain on the plane, as though somehow that would protect them from injuries on the jump. I'm sorry, James, that doesn't work, but uh, there you go. Or to pray uh, that at the end, when this man is facing the end of the course of his life, getting to the, to the edge of the river, the very place that they would be someday themselves, and had no more strength, and whose body was visibly failing, they wanted me to pray that somehow he would have a little bit more life on this side of glory. But that's not the case. And I pray, I pray from, uh, from my heart, honestly, the bottom of it, that you would not do that when it comes time for you to die. Do not push off the idea that you are dying. Do not delude yourself. And certainly don't delude your relatives when that is the case, but rather press them to be ready for that moment as you who know the gospel surely can. Ready them for what is to come and make sure that they know where they are going. And if you are the one who is dying, then have words that are fitting in that moment. You don't have to sit and prepare them long in advance. It would be rather odd. I've never actually seen somebody on their deathbed take out a piece of paper and go, <coughs> uh, I have some things to say, to you, you know, that kind of thing. But rather, I, I have, and I'll share with you in a little while, I have seen people say some wonderful things. I, I believe with the nudging of the Holy Spirit, on their deathbed in my time. 
Now, in this case, of course, David knew he was dying, and praise God, he didn't delude himself. He said to his son, I go the way of all the earth. He was about to depart, and he knew it. And so he is concerned in these verses, obviously, to fulfill one final task. Before he dies, he wants to give one final charge or exhortation to his son Solomon, who will be continuing now to rule the nation, following after him. In 1 Chronicles, chapters 28 and 29, and I, I want to encourage you to read that today. Read 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. Uh, you will find in those chapters a record of the last public speech that King David gave after Solomon had been installed as his successor. He had spoken to the assembly of Israel and he had spoken to Solomon in those moments and he talked about how it had been his desire to build the temple, how he was not going to be able to do so, but how God was making it possible for Solomon now to build the temple and he would talk about all the preparations he had already made to do that, particularly the, the plans for the building of the temple. But here we have a more intimate picture, don't we? We have this picture of a father speaking his final words to his son, giving his final instructions to him. Uh, and this is, as I said before, this is a charge that he is giving to him. Now, charge in that sense, usually when we talk about charges, we're talking about how much we have to pay, or hopefully we're not standing in a court listening to them being read to us, the charges that are against us. This is a charge that is being laid on Solomon by his father, and it's a charge to do something, a duty or a task. That is a charge that's being given to him. Uh, for instance, when I was ordained as a minister, amongst other things, I was solemnly charged to, build, uh, to preach the whole counsel of God and to hold nothing back. And I have striven to do that since that time. I have uh, occasionally thought of the day of my ordination, the vows that I took, and the things that I was told to do regarding you. One of the things that I always think of when I come up here is, of course, James' warning and James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers because you will be held to a stricter standard. And what, of course, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, how he had held back nothing that was profitable to God's people, but had taught them and instructed them from house to house. Now here Solomon is charging his son. His charge has three parts. The first part regards his present and future character as the king of the nation. The second part regards his piety and his love of the Lord. And the third part of this charge regards doing justice as the king of Israel. So the first thing that he tells him uh, is very startling, but very good. He tells him, Solomon, be strong and prove yourself a man. Now, I, I must say, because uh, today I, I, I'm not even sure we understand what that means. Be strong and, and prove yourself a man. Certainly our society seems to have forgotten what those words mean entirely. He is not saying, let's, let's just, uh, you know, just move the things that he's not saying. He's not saying, Solomon, go to the gym and get ripped really buff, you know, six-pack abs, and you'll be ready for anything they throw at you. That's not what he is saying. He is not saying get physically strong. And he is not telling him, Solomon, you must be a mighty warrior and be ready for everything in that you know, particular field. I don't know why I'm doing a Schwarzenegger voice, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> He's not telling him to become Conan the Barbarian or anything like that. David, admittedly, even as he's dying, he's an older warrior. And yet, 
He had named his son Shlomo. He had named his son Solomon in the English, which comes from the Hebrew word for peace. What word is that? Shalom. Same root. He had named his son after his hopes. He wanted him, obviously Solomon, to be a king who wasn't afraid of war, but at the same time who reigned in peace and yet was strong at the same time in the midst of it. We used to say strength or peace through strength, and he was hoping that his son would reign, obviously, over a kingdom in peace, but a kingdom also that was strong. But if the kingdom was to be strong, then the man at the, the head of the kingdom had to be strong, and he had to set the example in leading his people. I think we have forgotten that, haven't we, that the, that the leader of a nation is supposed to set the example. He's supposed to be... Uh, although uh, the best of men are men at best, as I often say, and yet our leaders are supposed to be people who set a good example for us, who have stronger characters than average, who are more pious, who are, who are better able to think through things, who are calmer and wiser. That's why they're supposed to be our leaders. He is calling upon Solomon then to be an example for the nation, a man who has strength of mind, who is clear thinking, who is patient, who doesn't get nervous uh, when he's faced with a problem and fall apart. He is calling upon Solomon to be a man with strength of character, a man who's simply not personality, a gladhander, a, a typical politician from the current age. He's calling upon him to be a man who's a statesman from another age, a man who will stand firm and do the right thing, even if his people want him to do the wrong thing. He's calling upon him to be a man also of courage, the courage to do what is right when it is difficult, and to continue to, to persevere in a good cause, even when it costs you. He wants him, obviously, to be strong in the sense of not being a man-fearer, a man who is constantly putting his finger in the wind and figuring out which way it's blowing and then going in that direction. He does not want his son Solomon to be a weather vane. Now, how will Solomon do that? He is, after all, just a man, and he's very young when he takes up the kingship. There is an old tradition, I don't believe it, but there's a tradition that he was only 12 when he became king. I seriously doubt that was the case, but we know he was young. Regardless, Solomon is being called upon to do something that's almost impossible for men. How then will he do it? Well, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And so Solomon is being told, walk by faith. He's being told that he must walk in the way of the Lord. He must follow the Lord's commandments. It is only if he does so, it's only if he's a pious man, a godly man, a true leader, that the nation will prosper. It's the only way he will prosper. If the Lord is with him, and if he is with the Lord, walking in the pathway that the Lord would have him walk. Now, it takes, I, I must tell you this, and you should know this, living both in this age when David was giving his final instructions to Solomon and in our age today and in every intervening age, it takes a man who is strong and faith-filled not to be pragmatic. What is to be pragmatic? It is to do what seems to be the easiest course that will produce the best results. 
pragmatism often leads us, though, to do that which is directly against what God tells us to do. Because God doesn't always tell you. In fact, it's seldom the case that God says, take the easiest route to any particular solution. He does not want us to be pragmatic. And he does not want Solomon to be pragmatic. He also does not want Solomon to give in to his desires. A man who takes advantage of everything that is thrown his way, regardless of whether or not it is good. A man who follows every carnal inclination is not going to be a good leader, either in the family, in the church, or in the nation. And so Solomon must learn to subdue his nature. He must also do these things if he will rule well. And as I've said, he cannot follow the crowd. He must, as David tells him, love the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul. And that reminds us of the instruction that Jesus gave us, summing up the first table of the law, the first four commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is what David is telling him to do. And he cannot do that without the spirits helping him. Now, the men who really rule this way, who rule because they have the Holy Spirit within them and who walk by faith, they are uncommon men. But they do make the best leaders, the men who are truly following the Lord. It should be the case that a leader, a true leader, can say, follow me as I am following God. And then us come up behind them and know we're headed in the right direction. We are reminded also in this chart of what Moses said to Joshua. You remember in Deuteronomy 31.7 as Moses knew also he was about to die. He was about to go up on, on um, Mount, uh, not Mount Ebal. I forgot the name of the mount. But it was the mount upon which you could see from the plains of Moab into Jerusalem. And he was going to die there. He knew that his end was coming. And he wanted Joshua to be ready. So he said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. You must be a man of courage. Moses had spent an entire book, you remember, charging the people to walk in the ways of the Lord, to walk according to his counsel. It's only if you do that that you will be a true leader. And we see that Joshua was a true leader. Why? Because he loved the Lord and he loved his word. And then we see that David, he also calls him to do some some difficult things. He charges him to do justice. And he sets three cases in particular before him. Now, um, I've got to tell you that as you read commentators, at this point, things kind of fall apart in in many commentaries. Uh, There's a lot of commentators who treat this section immediately after he gives him the, the moral instructions to be strong and a man of courage as though David suddenly becomes very carnal, as though he suddenly becomes uh, Don Corleone speaking to Michael in the garden in the Godfather. There are some people you're going to have to take care of. That kind of thing. You know, and it's, it's a very uh, I, fleshly approach, unfortunately, to the situation. And I don't think it's right. It's not right at all. Bear in mind, and this is very important to remember, that David and Solomon, yes, they were individuals. They were mere men. They weren't, they weren't like Christ, the great David's greatest son. But they were both anointed to serve as kings of Israel. And they were appointed in that power by the Lord. And as Romans 13 tells us, they were given the power of the sword in order to subdue Israel. 
And it was their job to render justice, not for themselves, but for the people. So David, the divinely anointed king, the, the Messiah, or that's a small m, not the uh, Messiah, the, the one who is uh, the, the actual Messiah, Jesus Christ, but the, uh, the uh, assigned and anointed man of God, he was the representative of God at the head of the kingdom. And to attack David was therefore to attack God. To go after him was to insult the Lord. And this is why uh, we see David understanding the importance of the Lord's anointed and the head of the kingdom. You remember David had several opportunities to raise his hand against Saul. And I mean, in one sense, we would all understand it. Saul is chasing him. Saul becomes homicidal, unbalanced towards David. He understands, in one sense, that the kingdom has been given by God into the hand of David and therefore his own line and his own sons, Jonathan in particular, will not be taking over as a king, and he gnashes his teeth against it. He wants to do whatever he can to prevent that from happening, so he tries to kill David repeatedly, and the Lord delivers Saul into his hands. Twice he had opportunities to kill him that he doesn't do. Why? Because to do so would have been to have raised his hand against the Lord's anointed, perish the thought that he should do that. An attack against the Lord's king is an attack against the Lord, he thinks in his mind. Now, men had essentially attacked him, undermined his dignity. Two in particular that we're going to see, Joab and Shimei. They had cursed him. And in so doing, they had cursed the Lord. They had shaken their fist against the Lord and his power. And so he tells Solomon about them and he urges him to take justice in his case. Let's talk about Joab. Who was Joab? Well, Joab was uh, a man who was very close to David. He was a relative of David. He was, therefore, part of his family. But he was, as David puts it, a man of blood. He operated as, as his general. But on two different occasions, David had attempted to remove him from that post because he understood that his character was flawed, to put it mildly. And on both occasions, Joab had killed the men, assassinated the men whom David had picked to lead in his place. First Abner, and then later Amasa. And in both, he had killed them deceitfully, getting their own blood on him. David speaks expressively. He got blood on his belt, blood on his shoes. It wasn't just that his hands were imbrued with their blood, he was covered in it by his deceit and the terrible way that he had killed these people deceitfully. At a time when there should have been peace between them, he had murdered them. And he had brought disrepute, therefore, upon David. If Joab was a murderer, if Joab was asserting his political will in this place, wasn't he acting for David, was what everybody thought. No, I did not order that these men be killed by him. He took these things into his own hands. But he also points out to Solomon in, in saying that these things, he's a dangerous man. I know he's old, but he'll be a danger to you and your kingdom. He had already seen how he had thrown in his hand with Adonijah, David's other son. And at this point in time, Adonijah is still alive. Joab, my son Solomon, is a man who deserves God's justice. And he is also a man who is dangerous. But be wise, he tells him. You can't just act against Joab. Although you are the king, remember that Joab is in charge still of the army. He still has a lot of, a lot of power. Well, he wasn't in charge of the army, but he had a lot of weight with them as well. And within the tribe of Judah. 
Be careful, be wise. And so Solomon takes that to heart. But justice isn't just bringing the sword down against people. Justice is doing good as well. And there's an opportunity that Solomon calls upon Sol, uh, sorry, David calls upon Solomon to exercise charity as well. He reminds him of Barzillai. And Barzillai was an old man who had helped David at the time of Absalom, another one of his son's rebellion. When David had had to flee suddenly from Jerusalem, Barzillai was one of the men who had brought provisions to David in the midst of the wilderness and so exposed himself uh, if Absalom had won the civil war, then Barzillai and his family would have probably gone to the sword. But he had brought them food. He had brought them bedding. He had taken care of them. And then as David, after the rebellion was subdued, was coming back into the city, Barzillai had met with the king and had gone with him over the river as they were entering triumphantly. And David had said, Barzillai, come with me. Come and feast with me. Barzillai said, look, David, I'm an old man. I'm very old. My, my, my tongue doesn't even taste things anymore. My kids tell me that at the rate that I'm consuming sriracha, I'll, I'll probably be like Barzillai by the time I'm 60. But in any event, <laughs> Barzillai was, was much older than that. He said, I, I don't have any joy in feasting or any of those things. Uh, it's enough for me that you are being restored. But, said Barzillai, remember my son. And in particular, he, he points out Kimhang to him. And David then says to Solomon, this was a good man. He deserves to be remembered. Too often, promises made by political figures are forgotten. Favors that are done are, are pushed away. Times when people stood with you. One of the awful things about Washington that I found was that uh, one day, you know, a politician, and I, I did work in, in D.C. for a time, would be glad-handing somebody, smiling at them. You're my number one guy. But it was like Jack Palance and, and the first Batman. You are my number one. And the next thing they know, they're sticking a knife between their shoulder blades or climbing over them to get to the next position. David is not like that, though. He wants him to remember Barzillai and his family and to do him good. But then what a contrast with Barzillai is the third man, the Shimei, from 2 Samuel 16.5. We remember that when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, Shimei, this Benjaminite, uh, Benjamite, rather, came out and he was kicking up dirt and dust and throwing rocks at David, calling him a man of blood, saying, now you're going to get what you deserve, David, you rogue, you scoundrel. David had not, however, simply put him to death. Even when his men were, were itching, please let us put this dog to death. He had said no. And then after the rebellion, David had said, I'm not going to kill you. But he remembered what Shimei had done, and he warned Solomon, this too is a dangerous man. If he turned against me like that, he'll turn against you as well. And he dwells within Jerusalem. And so what Solomon will do with him, we'll see is he, uh, he, he's going to put him under house arrest and we'll see what happens there. But again and again, we see David warned Solomon against these men and said, justice needs to be done. And we will see how providentially that happened. Now, I want to give you three applications of these things in your own life. The first is this. We, we live in an age where softness and effeminacy are the, the rule of the day, even for men. We are teaching our children to be soft, to be victims, to, to claim oppression. Uh, I, I am amazed. I, I know, appalled. I, I remember I, I saw, and obviously life should not be lived by memes, but uh, I saw a picture of, of a kid jumping, and it's kids 
before your parents get angry with me, do not do this. I am not saying go home and do this. Kid, a kid jumping a dirt bike on a homemade ramp over four of his friends laying flat in front of it, okay? And I thought to myself, that's the kind of thing we did all the time without thinking about it. Nobody I knew ever wore a helmet when biking. And I know there are probably parents who are like, oh my word, what is he doing? Stop making this example. But how things have changed. Now, kids can't go out of the house without us, you know, suiting them up, packing them in bubble wrap, you know, so, <laughs> now go and, no, don't play with your friends, come back inside. Sit in front of the electronic device for a few more hours. That kind of thing. We, we are teaching our children to be soft. And we ought not to be, obviously. We need men who are not just physically strong. There are a lot of guys. I mean, this town is filled with men. And this is a sad thing. I, you, you, I, I hadn't really seen it like I have here. Men who were strong physically but weak in terms of their character. Weak, certainly, in terms of their morals and their religion. We need men who are, regardless of how strong they are physically, we need men who are men of character, men of worth men of piety, men who will stand firm in the evil day, men who know the Lord. Now you are not being charged this day by David, but you have been charged by the Lord. Men, I'm speaking particularly to you in this moment. You remember how when Paul was concluding his words to the Corinthian congregation, what he said, he did not say, is play, he did not say play the victim. Pretend that you have all these conditions and so on and that you can't take care of yourself and everybody be, be nice to me. You know, that kind of thing. And then give in to all of your, your desires. Do everything wrong. He said, what did he say? Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Now, your body may be weak. Your Physical stamina may not be much. You may be afflicted by all manner of disease, but that does not mean that you cannot be brave. It does not mean that you cannot be strong inwardly. The kind of man who is willing to say no when there is injustice and evil. The kind of man who is not giving either this salute or this salute when everybody else is. Who's willing to bear the burdens, who's willing to be a man of responsibility, who is willing to do the right thing when it costs him. Those are men who are in short supply, but we, we so need them, not just in the nation. I'll tell you two other areas where we desperately need men of strength and courage, men who are really men. We need them in the church. We are feminizing the church, and that by design, and we have made a situation in which men are no longer true biblical leaders within their families, and we desperately need them as well. Men who understand the importance of, of being the vice regent of God and, and saying not daddy's will, do it because I say so, but rather instructing people in the right way and then saying, this is the word of the Lord. And knowing the word of the Lord. And when we correct our kids, not merely saying, I'm doing this because I want it, but rather, I'm doing this because the Lord instructs me to. 
and therefore setting the right example for them. But to do that, we've got to be men of piety ourselves, men of conviction. You know how useless it is to tell a kid to do something you don't do and won't do. I, I remember having a, it was a surreal conversation. I, I remember having a conversation with a parent who didn't understand why their child had gone so off the path. And he made the point, he said, we dropped him off for church every Sunday. <laughs> well, I, I don't get it either. <laughs> what lesson was he actually learning on Sunday? Church is for children. And I'm not a kid anymore. Now for the adult stuff. Uh, that must not be the case. But what is, what is then, I mean, we, we live in an age where uh, people talk about toxic masculinity, which is probably one of the most overused and ridiculous phrases that's ever been coined. And we live in an age where being strong, especially in, in this environment, is associated with being a warrior. Well, what does it mean to be strong and to be a man of God and not be a warrior necessarily? It is possible to be a man of God and a warrior at the same time. But what does it look like when you're not necessarily serving in the armed forces? or an emergency uh, you know, fireman or an EMT or a policeman or something like that where you have an opportunity to prove your courage on a regular basis. Well, I'll give you an example from Fox's Book of Martyrs. And these were two, obviously, men of the cloth, reformers, English reformers, at a time when to be a Protestant was a death sentence under Bloody Queen Mary. And they were Latimer and Ridley. They brought a bundle of wood kindled with fire and laid the same down at Dr. Ridley's feet. Keep in mind, these were, these were men of learning to whom Master Latimer spoke in this manner. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And so the fire being given unto them, when Dr. Ridley saw the fire flaming up towards him, he cried with a wonderful loud voice, In manus teus domine, commendo spiritum meum, domine recipe spiritum meum. And after repeated this latter part often in English, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. Master Latimer crying as vehemently on the other side, O Father of heaven, receive my soul, who received the flame as it were, embracing of it. After that, he had stroked his face with his hands and as it were, bathed them a little in the fire. He soon died as it appeareth with very little pain or none. And thus much concerning the end of this old and blessed servant of God, Master Latimer, for whose laborious trials, fruitful life and constant death, the whole realm hath caused to give great thanks to Almighty God. That was a strong man. He was old and frail in body, but he had a courage beyond the human. Why? Because he had the Holy Spirit dwelling with him. He knew the Lord, and he was determined to honor God. That, brothers and sisters, is how to live and how to die. We need not just men like that. We need Christians like that. Christian men, Christian women, and I dare say Christian children who will stand fast because we live in an evil day too. Thomas Boston, who was himself an associate Presbyterian, said, Our life in the world is but a short preface to long eternity, and much of the tale is told, Oh, shall we not double our diligence when so much of our time is spent and so little of our great work is done? Let us be about that work while we have yet time. Now, let me ask you this question. What would you say? This is my second application. I'm probably going to cut one out given the time. What would you say if you knew you were about to die? 
What legacy would you leave those who are around you? What, what testimony would, give you, would you give your, your family and your friends? And, and what spiritual legacy would you leave? If you have children and grandchildren, would you leave them? People will say, well, not many people have an opportunity to do that. Well, actually, I've seen. I've seen exactly that happen. I remember once uh, visiting a grandmother in the hospital. It was a wonderful contrast to the example that I gave you before. It was a, an older lady, a relative had said she's uh, away from her home church. Her home church was much further down south. And uh, she's dying here. Her family's with her, but her pastor isn't. Could you go and visit her? So I went and I visited this woman. And I began to share the gospel with her. And at one point she said, it's okay. I, I know the Lord I'm going to be with him very soon. I can't wait to be worshiping with that mighty assembly in heaven. She said, but you know what you can do for me? And then she indicated her relative. She said, tell them about Jesus because they're not ready. And so to the horror of the assembled family, I preached the gospel to them. That's the kind of example. And you never know what your words are going to do. I'll I'll give you one parting example of the way that kind of thing can actually be used in the world. William Grimshaw of Hayworth was a uh, a pastor. He was the rector of of the town of Hayworth, a man who had been mightily used of the Lord. He had brought about revival. He'd been an itinerating preacher for a while. He preached in in churches and even in... um, in cemeteries when they refused to let him in the building and so on. But he had served the Lord and he was dying. He was dying of a fever. A, a communicable sickness had gone around. He caught it and now he was dying. And he said to a friend, I am quite exhausted, but I shall soon be at home forever with the Lord, a poor, miserable sinner redeemed by his blood. One of his fellow pastors, Henry Venn, came and visited him and he asked him, How are you doing? How are you feeling? And he said, never had I such a visit from God since I first knew him. I am as happy as I can be on earth and as sure of glory as if I were in it. So he was dying in faith in Christ. He had nothing to fear. He knew exactly where he was going. But at the same time, there was something that broke his heart. What was it? It was his son, John. His son, John, had been a prodigal. He'd lived a careless and intemperate life. But his son reached his bedside before his father died. And he shared with him this. He said, take care what you do to his dear son, for you are not fit to die. Many years later, John was riding his father's horse. Or actually, it wasn't many years. It was actually a short time. A little while later, John was riding his father's horse, which he had bequeathed to him. And uh, a disgusted villager said, I see you're riding the old parson's horse. And his son replied, yes. Once he carried a great saint, and now he carries a great sinner. But it seems at that moment of self-realization, John began to change through the influence of the Holy Spirit. For a little while later on, it was recorded that a miraculous change occurred within him. He became a man of God. He remembered his father's dying words to him. And he said in his own dying words to those who were around him, he when he died on May 17th, 1766, he said, what will my old father say when he sees I've got to heaven? Well, brothers and sisters, I pray that you will die well. I pray that you will be prepared for that day. I pray that you'll have words that will edify if you have an opportunity to speak from the people around you. But know that that day is coming. It comes for us all. Be ready for it. 
make sure that you have got your affairs in order. And know this, there are so many who get their affairs in order in terms of their household, their economy, their insurance, all of those things. But spiritually, they are completely unprepared to die. Don't let that be the case. Know that when you breathe your last breath, when you take your last step, when you live your last moment, that the very next moment you will be entering into glory and you will hear those words that I hope you long to hear. Well done, O good and faithful servant. Do we not all want to enter into the joy of our master? I pray that you are prepared to do that because you have closed with Christ. You have kissed the son, you have bowed to his will, and you have nothing but joy in it. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I pray, Lord, that you would make us men and women, and yes, even children, who are prepared for every eventuality, even to cross the river of death. Let us not fear it. Lord, it is natural to feel anxiety when it comes to that subject. But let us have nothing ultimately to fear, to know exactly where we are going, and to trust in the promises of Christ, who said that he went to prepare a place for us, and that if it were not so, he would have told us. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room is ready to die, and we'll have nothing more to do when it comes that time 